Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, here's a catchy little tune to get us going. She was as proud as a girl could be There's something true about red, white, and blue about Rosie The Riveter Listeners, if you were wondering who sang that fun little tune, it was the Vagabonds, and the tune is Rosie the Riveter all the way back in the 1940s. That's right, Courtney. This song celebrated women who worked in the defense industry back then. Rosie the Riveter was a cultural icon of World War II, and she represented the 20 million women who worked in factories, shipyards, and even government offices during the war. Many of them produced munitions and war supplies then. And Carol, most of our listeners have probably seen the memorable Norman Rockwell poster called Rosie the Riveter of a white woman wearing a red bandana and flexing her muscles. Rosie was such an icon of the female can-do spirit. I even dressed up as her for Halloween a few years back and everyone knew who I was immediately. It was a symbol of woman power and the contributions to the war effort. But many don't know the face of that famous poster could have been of a black woman because they were just as integral to the war effort as white women were. In fact, during World War II, about 600,000 black women left jobs as domestics and sharecroppers to help fuel what was called America's arsenal of democracy. Well, as usual, you're right again, Courtney. It's been hidden history about these women. Now, the roles that Black Rosies played in the war effort ran the gamut. They worked in factories as sheet metal workers and munitions and explosive assemblers. They were in Navy yards as shipbuilders and uh, along assembly lines as electricians. They even were administrators and welders and railroad conductors and many, many, many more jobs. They did a lot. And I am proud to say my grandmother, your mom, was an actual Rosie the Riveter in Carol. 
You're right. You're right. My mother drove a tractor in a munitions dump during World War II. Now, she was responsible for moving highly explosive materials through these really narrow pathways and then stacking them in preparation for shipping to planes and ships headed for the war front. Wow, Aunt Carol. Now, I really wish grandma were alive today to be a part of not only this podcast, but of an important film that was made about Black Rosie the Riveters. George S. Cook produced the documentary Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II. And in the film, he captures the individual experiences of a small group of determined ladies who represented those 600,000 Black Rosie the Riveters, just like my grandma. Yep, just like her. And the website for that film describes it as, quote, an unforgettable conversation among a diverse group of African-American Rosie the Riveters who recount what life was really like during World War II. They are hardworking underdogs of high character who do battle and win. They fled lives as domestics and sharecroppers to empower themselves while working in war production and U.S. government offices. Well, you know, these patriotic pioneers, they shared their wartime memories in this film, recounting their battles against racism at home, Nazism abroad, and sexism everywhere. So I vividly remember my mother telling about how she had to maneuver those tractors safely through the munitions dump. So I can imagine she would have been delighted to add her story to that film. But, you know, Courtney, speaking of stories, I think you have some stories about these women that will make us proud of their efforts during World War II, just like we're proud of your grandmother, my mom. I definitely do, and Carol. The writer Aaron Randall gives an excellent history about the Black Rosie the Riveters on the History.com website. Now, Randall writes that once America entered World War II in 1941, millions of American men enlisted into the military. So with most of the men off at war, the government had to rely on women to fill the domestic war-related roles. At the peak of wartime industrial production, about 2 million women worked in war-related industries. These were lucrative jobs that paid well, but as usual, systemic racism was an obstacle for Black women. At first, finding war-related work proved difficult since many employers almost always had been white men and refused to hire them. Now, according to Dr. Maureen Honey, author of Bitter Fruit, African-American women in World War II, the war represented this incredible opportunity, but Black women really had to rally and fight for the opportunity to even be considered. Many employers held out attempting to only hire white women or white men until they were forced to do so otherwise. Now, in the summer of 1941, activist Mary McLeod Bethune and A. Philip Randolph put pressure where pressure was needed. They told President Franklin Roosevelt about the widespread hiring discrimination in the defense industry and convinced him to sign Executive Order 8802, banning racial discrimination in the defense industry, opening the door for one million Black Americans to enter defense and civil service jobs. And that one million included those 600,000 women 
those black Rosie the Riveters. The role these women played in the war effort ran the gamut. Like you said earlier, they worked in factories as sheet metal workers and munitions and explosive assemblers like grandma. In the Navy yards, they were shipbuilders, along with assembly lines as electricians. They were administrators, welders, railroad conductors, and more. Black Rosies worked critical roles outside of the manual labor force, too. They worked as computer scientists, clerk typists, and in the fields as farmers, growing cotton for bed linens and uniforms for the American troops abroad. But in spite of their critical contributions in the war effort, their work went largely unrewarded, and many of the women faced discrimination and systemic racism. Oh, boy. Well, you know, sometimes we do our best and still we don't get to um, be recognized for it. And, you know, I truly wish my mother were here today so I could ask more questions than I did as a kid about her role as a Rosie the Riveter. I had no idea how important she was to the war effort. Driving that tractor was a dangerous but necessary job. Now, I only hope she wasn't subjected to problems on top of that danger. So when we come back after the break, we'll hear what these women face while doing their jobs, usually those jobs reserved for men. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, Courtney, when we went to break, you had told us about the wide variety of jobs Black women were eventually allowed to take as part of the war effort. Now, what are some of the obstacles they had to overcome while doing those jobs? Well, in Carol, despite their importance, Black Rosie still faced racism and sexism on the home front. Both Black and white women were routinely paid 10 to 15 cents an hour lower than their male counterparts, despite the equal pay regulations. Also, across the nation, Black workers received fewer benefits and were barred from running any union activities. Not only were the Black Rosies paid less and kept from leading unions, they could only join a separate auxiliary to a union, but didn't get any of the benefits like the regular union members did. In fact, the shipbuilders union blocked Black people from membership altogether. Hiring was also a problem with these jobs. For example, at Wagner Electric, a factory in St. Louis, despite a diverse workforce composed of 64% white women and 24% black men, no black women were hired. Now, some companies provided childcare for the Rosies in their factories, but not for black women and their children. In spite of the obstacles, these women persevered because they had something going for them. Working outside of the home was not new for black women. 44% of black women were already working outside of the home before World War II, twice the rate of white women. So they were ready to enter the workforce, but only this time in better paying and more respected jobs. 
Good for them. Good for them. Now, in the film we mentioned earlier, some of the Black Rosies told personal stories about their treatment on the jobs. Instead of telling just one of them, I want to give background on several of these women so our listeners get a glimpse of who they were and what they had to, over, had to overcome. Now, Willie Mae Govan, one of the three women who worked making gunpowder for the E.I. DuPont Corporation in Childersburg, Alabama, described the sexual harassment she endured at the hands of white male bosses at her plant. Willie Mae had worked in a particularly dangerous job, and she believed the stress of the job and the harassment she endured contributed to the intense migraine headaches she's had for much of her life. Bernice Bowman worked at the U.S. General Accounting Office as a clerk typist, and she said even though her white co-workers were frequently promoted, she was never offered the chance for advancement. She said this, the thing is, Black people were used to discrimination, so we just did our best and ignored it and kept pushing on. Now, Tina Hill, whose story was captured in Rosie the Riveter Revisited, was born and raised in Texas and, and attended the Negro Vocational College in Prairie View before going to work as a domestic at age 18. She later married and was living in Los Angeles when her husband joined the Army during World War II. In Los Angeles, the local Negro Victory Committee offered Black women training and helped them secure employment in the defense industries. In 1943, after completing the training, Tina went to work for North American Aircraft, working as a riveter for two years. Eventually, she worked there for almost 40 years. Clara Hunter Doubtly was born and raised in Detroit, where she attended the predominantly white Cass Technical High School, but she left before graduating to work as a riveter at Briggs Manufacturing in Detroit. Clara helped build the B-29 bombers. Clara said she was grateful to get the job, and although she encountered racism by both white males and females at the Briggs factory, her mother raised her to believe that she was as good as anyone else. Clara says she ignored the difficulties and just did her job putting in 10-hour days building bombers. Now, my favorite story, though, is about Betty Reed Soskin, who at the age of 100 retired as the oldest National Park Service ranger. But before doing that job, Betty had been a Rosie working as a file clerk in a segregated union hall during World War II. Many years later, Soskin worked with the National Park Service to write a grant proposal funded by Pacific Gas and Electric to uncover the untold stories about the Black Rosie the Riveters. Because of her work on that project when she was a young 84 years, she took a temporary position working with the Park Service. In 2007, Betty became a permanent park employee where she led public programs and shared her personal remembrances and observations at the park visitor center until retiring in April 2022. In early 2019, a film produced by the Rosie the Riveter Trust released a film, No Time to Waste, an urgent, the urgent mission of Betty Reed Soskin. The documentary tells the story of Betty's involvement with the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historic Park and the influence she has had on the National Park Service. 
Wow, what a group of women. They've done quite a bit uh, running the gamut and doing it for a long time. So despite the lower pay in Carol and the mistreatment that these women experienced, they still prevailed. Now, working under these government contracts for many Black women gave them a chance to advance themselves and their families. For some, this employment provided them their first opportunity to buy homes and rental properties to start accumulating generational wealth. Also, working as Black Rosies was a status job for Black women overdoing domestic work, and that's the work they were most normally regulated to. So this work as a Rosie the Riveter kind of elevated that job status. But for decades, the efforts of Black Rosies went largely unrecognized until African-American historians, playwrights, and filmmakers like Gregory S. Cook began shedding light on their contributions. Cook says, the contribution of Black women is one which this nation would be unwise to forget or evaluate falsely. These women, I truly believe, are some of the most significant women of the 20th century. Well, Courtney, I couldn't agree with him more. And thanks for enlightening us on the crucial contributions the Black Rosie the Riveters made to America. And also, you know, thank you for reminding me how important my own mother was in that historic time period. The documentaries Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II, and No Time to Waste, The Urgent Mission of Betty Reed Soskin are long overdue tributes to these women. Well, I like to think that grandma's independence and bravery as a Rosie is what guides us uh, today, our whole family. And Carol, I also think that the Black Rosies influenced how women were viewed in the workforce for years to come. Well, Courtney, you're probably right on both counts. For example, when the war ended, the employment situation again shifted for women, Black and white. Some left their jobs as Rosie the Riveters to reestablish their homes for husbands returning from, from the war. But, you know, many women were not given a choice about their employment, and they were laid off from their jobs to make room for men. But since most Black women didn't have the luxury to return to being housewives, just keeping homes, they uh, went on to seek jobs in other sectors of the economy. For example, your grandmother did exactly that because she worked as an elevator operator in a large hotel after the war. Now, some like Tina Hill and Clara, Clara Dowdley that you mentioned earlier, they were lucky to keep their well-paying jobs in the defense industry, even though racism and discrimination continued after the war ended. But, you know, Courtney, the good news is because the Black Rosies helped desegregate jobs in the defense industry and civil service, eventually this made a lasting and positive effect for Black people as a whole and women in particular. For example, in 2020, the percentage of Black American workers in the defense industry remains at or above the percentage of Black Americans within the population of the United States, which is 13%. Now, that's an excellent statistic, Aunt Carol. But what about the public sector jobs and civil service positions? What? 
Well, you know, there's good news in those areas too, Courtney. Black Rosie the Riveters worked in those defense industry jobs, but they also worked in a variety of public sector positions too. Now, these types of jobs have always been a source of opportunity and security for Black Americans for generations. They include jobs with the federal, state, and local government agencies, and they uh, are jobs that offer a leg up to millions of Black families and a path to the middle class. Now, there was a report done by the Center for American Progress that said government jobs or these public service jobs can be a tool against systemic racism. And that public job tradition has long benefited those Black families. According to that same report, today, nearly one in five Black workers will be employed in the public sector, whether the U.S. Postal Service, which has a legacy of anti-racist hiring dating back to Reconstruction, the military, which led the public and private sector in integration, these public sector jobs, whether they be at the federal uh, civil service level, state or local government level, they have offered a level of protection from employment discrimination that we often see in the private sector. Also, Public jobs provide good wages, better benefits, and greater job security, all of which are critical components of economic security and wealth building. Moreover, Courtney, the wealth gap in the public sector is much smaller. For example, in the private sector, white households have as much as $10 of wealth for each $1 in the Black household. In the public sector, though, white households hold closer to $2 for every $1 of wealth Black families hold. So it's almost even if you hold a public sector job uh, with the federal government, with the local government, uh, civil service of some sort, it's more likely that that wealth gap will be closed. Now, public employment also can provide greater economic security for Black workers by providing stronger checks on employment discrimination, uh, providing guaranteed lifetime retirement benefits, and allowing for unions to protect workers' rights. And who opened the door to public sector, civil service, and government contracted jobs like those in the defense industry? None other than the Black Rosie the Riveters. So we owe a huge debt of gratitude to these women for opening that door. Yes, we do. So as Veterans Day comes upon us, we have several episodes for Veterans Day you can listen to. And I hope we add this one to your listening arsenal. So in between now and our next episode, I hope you visit us on our website, which is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry to listen to past episodes, visit us on social media, and just see what we're doing around the internet. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.